You probably have never heard of Taylor Ostergaard and Lindsay Zalitti, but they were famous for a short time in 2004. It was one of those little stories, this was before Facebook, but you emailed it around and said, isn't it a shame what the world has come to? These two young ladies decided one day that instead of going to the school dance, they were going to go and bless their neighbors. So they decided they were going to make plates of cookies for everyone on their street who they thought could use a little encouragement, and then cut out paper hearts, which is just about the sweetest, most innocent thing I can think of. And it took all day as they did. They'd make a plate of cookies, they'd make the paper hearts, they brought them to the home, they'd bring the doorbell, they'd say, here you go. And they didn't get done, and they were working on the last one, the, the woman way at the end of the block, until 10.30 at night. And they got the cookies, they said, oh, let's just deliver them. If she doesn't answer, we'll leave them on the doorstep. They went and rang the doorbell. No one answered. But inside, the woman who lived there began to have an anxiety attack because she heard the doorbell so late at night. So she called 911, and she went, and she was, she was treated, and she was released the next day. And when she got back, she immediately sued the two girls for doing what they had done. And she won $900 to cover her ER visit and said, you know what, it's a good thing to teach those girls they shouldn't be out late at night, they could get in trouble. And everyone sent this around, and most people, they referenced that old adage, no good deed goes unpunished. And when I read a text like this, I get the same sort of feeling. And I wonder, initially, if while he was dragged before the rulers of Israel, is it possible that Peter was sort of thinking the same thing? I just healed a man who had been lame from birth, and now I'm being dragged, arrested, thrown in a prison cell, and I'm going to be tried. No good deed goes unpunished. But the more I think about it, and the more I know about Peter, and the more I understand about what it means to be a Christian, the more I realize that's not what was going through his mind. Undoubtedly, he was thinking about the words of Jesus in Mark 13. Jesus said, be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit." That is exactly what we see happening here. We understand from the book of Acts that Christianity demands of us to pick, take up our cross and follow Jesus, and that might mean persecution of different types. And through the church age, it has certainly meant persecution. And we probably don't do a good enough job of, uh, with prospective new converts reminding them of this. It's all best life, abundant life, forgiveness, and freedom, and joy. But Jesus said, hold on, count the cost. Count the cost. There will be a cost for living for me. Ultimately, it's all upside. It is all gain. Even to die is gain, if to live is Christ. But in this life, you will have troubles. And take heart, I have overcome the world. But we live in an age where we avoid every inconvenience, let alone suffering. 
I, yesterday, uh, no, two days ago, rather, I, I was, uh, on behalf of the deacons, going to pay someone's cell phone bill because they needed their phone for an interview. It was about to be shut off. I went to the, the cell phone store there, and while I was in there doing that, someone came in irate, just, just beyond angry. I just got this phone, and it isn't automatically updating my emails. Wow. You're awfully mad. You must have missed an important email. Emails aren't showing up. That's the only place you have to see them, and you can't see them. No, I have to push the button that says update in order for them to appear. Every inconvenience is an emergency, a tragedy. How do we make sense in a world like that of James 1 to consider it, therefore, pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Or 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And from this point on, in the book of Acts, there are only three chapters that don't include some sort of persecution being described to us. Serious persecution. And yet we, we romanticize this period. And we say, let's try to get back to that. The book of Acts, the early church, there was miracles, there was growth, there was excitement. It was great persecution. We just focus on the success. Perhaps we focus instead on these, these numbers that were given, right? They arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. I forget that. Many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men grew to about 5,000. We've gone from 11 scared people in an upper room and a, a group around them to 120 to 3,000, to 5,000, and we think, if only we could see that kind of growth today. And it makes us wonder, perhaps, why the emphasis on the numbers here? Is that what really matters, the number of people? There are, there are those who would maybe think so. All that matters is quantity. Others would say, no, 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 the depth of discipleship and the quality matters, and, and Jesus told us to be wary of false converts and all this sort of thing. Well, what is it that we're being taught by Luke here? Well, I think that we're seeing that God does care about numbers. Because every additional person who comes to faith is another person freed from their sins. Another person that Jesus loves who has been now set free, moved from death into life. This, these numbers are an initial encouragement, an initial reassurance. I said I'd be with you, and I'm with you. Yes, God is working in our midst, even after Jesus has ascended into heaven. The numbers aren't for numbers' sake. They're not bragging rights. John Siemens uh, told a story about how uh, there was a headmaster once uh, of a school, and a woman came there to talk about enrolling her children in the school. She said, well, I have uh, quite a few children. He said, how many? She said, well, there's Mary, there's John, David. And he said, no, 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 I didn't ask for all their names, just the number. And she said, well, they have names, not numbers. This is how God views us. We're not numbers. And any church, whether a huge megachurch or a small local church that actually does discipleship right, focuses on names and wants to see numbers. Not for their own sake, but for the sake of the glory of God. And we see that here in the book of Acts. These weren't anonymous people in a crowd showing up for a few songs and a, a little watered-down pep talk. No, this is a big group of people, but they're in each other's homes. We saw in Acts 2, 
They're breaking bread together. They're reading the scriptures together. They're studying together. They're praying together. And you know, we see this 5,000 number, and perhaps that is also to put things in perspective. Because we, we marvel at how quickly the church grew, and now it's 5,000 perhaps men plus women and children, but that's nothing compared to the power arrayed against them. First, the religio-political power of the high priests and the religious establishment, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, but then shortly after, the entire might of the Roman Empire coming down on this little upstart movement. From a human perspective, this is a guy with his foot hovering over an ant about to go, took care of that. And we see that that's how they're thinking of these things. The first six verses here are essentially a catalog of all the different categories of people who have joined forces to snuff out the church before it can really get going. Verse 1 tells us there were priests who came. And we believe here that the priests doesn't mean the, the, the everyday, faithful, pious priests who lived throughout Israel and came once in a lifetime or twice in a lifetime to humbly offer their service, but the, the ruling priestly caste, those who vehemently opposed Jesus and helped to put him to death, those who are uh, lumped together, priests and Sadducees. The temple guard came, even the captain of the temple guard. The temple guard, this is a police force, the very same that came and arrested Jesus. And the captain of the temple guard is second most powerful to the high priest. Maybe even a little more powerful in some settings because the high priest has to summon muscle. This guy is the muscle. You do not want him on your case, and yet here he is right on their case. In verse 5, it expounds even more. The rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law gathered after they'd been allowed to, to spend a night in a jail cell. Don't think that wasn't intentional. And, and so we see that those learned men who set the values for all the people, and you're expected to fall in line, they were there opposing the church. Then we're given names of individuals. Annas, the former high priest. He, he had been deposed by Rome sometime earlier, but everyone still thought of him as the high priest because that was a lifetime role. And so they went to him, and Caiaphas came. It was his son-in-law, the acting high priest. A couple of months earlier, Jesus had been dragged before both of these men, where he had been beaten and mocked and framed up with charges of blasphemy and treason. And these two guys had faced no consequences, no earthly consequences for that. Anyway, we see members of the high priestly family like John Alexander. The Sadducees, we're told, were there. That's a small but incredibly powerful group. Old money and old power. These had been the first to say, you know, Rome is here to stay. Why don't we cozy up to them? We'll make an alliance. We'll tell them we'll keep the people in line. We'll sedate them. Just give us power and position. They came from old priestly, aristocratic families, and they were used to having the power. It was the Sadducees and the high priests who said to Pilate when he was about to uh, release Jesus, they said, don't make, us, don't make us call Caesar. What was the area code for Rome again? Hmm? And he said, okay, I wash my hands of this. Now, within a few decades, the temple will be rubble, the Sadducees will disappear entirely, but in this moment, they're at the zenith of their power, 
and privilege, and they use their power and privilege to keep everyone else down. The Jewish historian Josephus remembers the Sadducees as, quote, more heartless than any other Jews. And so you have this vast array of enemies. It's so lopsided. Because on the other hand, you got two fishermen from Galilee. You couldn't make it any more lopsided. On the one side, it's a religious aristocracy. It'd be like if 100 years ago, you had people like Teddy Roosevelt and Pope Pius and Andrew Carnegie and 20 of their closest, most powerful friends saying, I'm taking down Steve Wakeford. I, Steve, I love you, but you're on your own, right? I'm not getting, I'm not getting in that fight. No, that isn't how it goes, though. What's funny to me is this list from Mark. You're going to be dragged before all these different kind of people. You know what? You'd think they'd come all at once, or one at a time, rather, but they come all at once. It's trial by fire right off the bat here. Everyone you can imagine, rulers, people who fancy themselves, kings, priests, authorities, Here they are, all at once, and they're looking down with utter contempt at this rabble. And this is how it continues to this day. Christians are seen as backwards and silly and easily dealt with. 1 Corinthians 1, we read this, For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to to shame the strong. And he, he uses these people and their might to shine a light on the power of his weakness on the cross in such a beautiful act of irony. And, and it's easy to miss something uh, in, in verse 1 that they really closed in on them very suddenly. They remembered losing the disciples before. They disappeared into the night. And so they're suddenly there. The, the word woodenly translates stand over. Suddenly they're standing over or appear. They just, boom, all of a sudden I'm preaching and there they are. We're surrounded. Temple guards, priests, Sadducees. We're, they're, they're there to shut it down with extreme prejudice. We're going to let them spend a night in a dark, dank cell. That will cool their zeal, right? Perhaps the captain of the temple guard mentioned we showed up with our torches and clubs and those 12 or those 11 with Jesus, boom, they scattered, they ran, scared, but that was before the Holy Spirit had descended upon them. Next week in verse 13, we will see that they, they behold the boldness of Peter and John and they start to doubt whether it will be so easy to deal with the church. This is important There's courage now. There's boldness now. It's needed, and it's needed now. The word for courage, the noun or the verb, to have courage, it's used 12 times in the book of Acts, once for each of the 12 disciples. And almost every single time it's used in conjunction, the context of someone preaching the gospel. It takes courage to speak God's truth in a culture that is hostile to it. And yet that's exactly what we're called to to do. And what's wild to me is how easily this turns. In trying to inspire fear in the disciples, these men simply reveal the fear and hatred that motivates them. Now, why are they upset? We're told they're upset for two reasons. First of all, 
because these two men were teaching at all. They were teaching, and they have no business teaching. They didn't go to the right rabbinical schools and universities like the in crowd did. This continues today, too, by the way, and looking down on people who don't have the right training or the training in the right place. I, my, my mentor, uh, my pastor growing up, uh, Dr. Or not Dr. Not Dr. All. I had Dr. Ed Pikey in college. I had Reverend Ed Pedley when I was in uh, junior high and high school. Very godly man. He didn't have a seminary education. And before he uh, even had a college degree, he was already doing ministry. He was preaching. He did youth ministry, and then he began to preach, and he had gifts, and he was wise, and he's still wise because I'm acting like he's dead, but he's not, sorry. And, and, and Pastor Pedley told me that one time he was at a gathering of ministers before he had even begun his education at Wycliffe, and someone said, so where did you go to school? Pastors ask this all the time because we're looking for, you know, someone who shares our alma mater and we can kind of share stories about professors. Well, he said, oh, I, I'm going to start at Wycliffe soon. I haven't been to school yet. And the guy turned his back, not a word, and walked away. Next guy who happened to ask him, where did you go to school? He said, foot of the cross, where did you go? <laughs> but we look back and how, how God uses those who don't have the worldly pedigree Again, the greatest preacher I know of in the modern world, Charles Spurgeon. No university degrees, no seminary. In fact, he said something about seminary degrees being like the curl on a pig's tail. Looks nice, not much function. Had an eidetic memory, studied new scriptures to the point where he came up with his sermons as he walked to the tabernacle in the morning. When we're empowered by God and we have the Holy Spirit, the world might look down on us and say, oh, you don't have what it takes, but the Holy Spirit is with us. And that's what's going on here. As they're jumped by everyone at once, spiritually speaking, they have what it takes to answer. Now, they were upset that they were teaching because they didn't have the, the education, but also because they didn't have the blessing of the powers. They hadn't come and, and kissed the ring, so to speak. And that's, that makes sense. I mean, even when Paul begins uh, teaching Christians, what does he first do? He goes to the apostles and he says, give me your stamp of approval. Here's what I believe. Here's what I teach. And they were all of one mind. They said, do it. Go and teach the Gentiles. We, we approve. Well, nobody had gone to the leadership and said, we want to start teaching about Jesus. Do we have your permission? Because God himself had given them the mandate and the permission. And on one level, I almost understand where they're coming from. Because these are people they've been teaching their whole lives and suddenly someone's coming up to steal their sheep. If I came here on like a Tuesday afternoon and a couple dozen of you were here in the pews and some guy I'd never seen before was preaching, I would think, what's happening? And as I listened, if it was stuff that was not Orthodox Christianity, I would follow the example of Jesus. I'd go, what would Jesus do? And I would fashion a whip out of cords and drive him out, naturally. Even, I've even had a couple people uh, courted by other fringe religious groups, right? They want to they take, and I get real upset and edgy about it. But you know what? At the end of the day, that kind of fear of exposure to other ideas, it comes down to a lack of faith. And our Baptist tradition is built very firmly on rejecting that fear and saying the gospel 
can take exposure to other ideas and other teachings. We don't need to shut people out and shut them up and shut them down like the leadership was trying to do to the apostles. We will trust sound doctrine to win the day because the Holy Spirit is is in that teaching. That kind of fear, though, is what's driving the enemies of the church here. They thought they had shut it down with Jesus when they killed him, and now there's two of them preaching. And they know there's 10 others somewhere in leadership, and they've heard there are thousands more growing every day. Not carpenters this time, but fishermen and tax collectors and troublemakers, and they really want to clamp down on this. Not only, though, were they just preaching and teaching, they were teaching about the resurrection. This was controversial at the time. The Sanhedrin, the high council, it was made up of Pharisees and Sadducees. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees didn't, which is why they were sad, you see. You know that one. But that's not what really even had them upset. Later on in, in chapter 23, Paul will masterfully slide the resurrection like a, like a grenade right into the middle of the Sanhedrin and divide them and use it to, to kind of manipulate them in a, in a very crafty as serpents, innocent as doves sort of way. That's not what's happening here. They're upset because specifically they're teaching the resurrection of Jesus. And if Jesus was raised from the dead, what are the implications? We who put him to death are against God's purpose. We are trying to thwart God's salvation. They can't have it. They can't have it. And so they are trying as hard as they can to stop that teaching. When we look at the, the teachings of John and his gospel, and especially in the Revelation, we see that there, there is a valid way to view all of church history, and perhaps all of salvation history, as a war between light and darkness. And light has its weapons and its tactics, and darkness has its weapons and its tactics. And, and darkness, as we see here, perfectly laid out, prefers weapons like force, intimidation, Power structures, wealth, unjust laws, and corrupt courts. By the way, these continue to be the world's strategies, and these continue to be the world's weapons. And we see in verse 21, after further threats, they told them, do not speak in this name. And you go, wait a minute, where were the earlier threats? I think the earlier threat was simply recreating almost perfectly the situation that led to Jesus' death. Saying, remember this? It was only a couple months ago. Jesus sat right there, and then he was dead. You're sitting right there now. Be careful. The subtext speaks volumes. And often today, the subtext speaks volumes. In parts of the world today, people are, are faced with the same choice. Die for my faith or renounce it. And people, even this morning, as we worship in freedom in other parts of the world, are dying for their faith in Jesus Christ. And we complain when we have subtext that says, if you're faithful to this Jesus thing, you'll fail this class. You won't get that raise. You'll be branded a hater and laughed at. You'll look backwards and stupid to the world, and you won't be thought of as sophisticated. And we say, well, maybe I'll back off a little bit. But what are the weapons and the tactics of the, the army of light? Not intimidation and force, not wealth, not, not corruption. No, rather we have the gospel of Jesus Christ. The greatest, most powerful thing 
that we could have been given. And, and yet because of the intimidation of the world, be it unjust laws and activist judges or, or just kind of learned people like the elders and the scribes and the priests, those who set the values for the culture ready to attack and belittle anyone who dares dissent, Christians fail time and again to actually proclaim that gospel, to articulate it. We water it down. We dull the sharp edge to avoid not only suffering, but even inconvenience. I'm guilty of it as well. But the church has got the secret weapon as well, the Holy Spirit indwelling each of us. And what does the Holy Spirit do for us? Just look at verse 8. He began to speak. That's what happens when the Holy Spirit fills people in the Scriptures. They begin to speak. And they are empowered to speak with the power of God. We look at verses 8 through 10. What, what do they say? Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if, you're being, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this has, the man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth this has happened. By the name of Jesus Christ. Now, he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and we might want to pause a minute and say, wait a minute, didn't that happen at Pentecost? Aren't they already indwelled with the Spirit? Yeah, but this is different. This is a special anointing for a special task. Ephesians 5 tells us, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's an ongoing thing. Every day we ought to pray, Lord, I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit today so that I can speak your word and I can be the hands and feet and love of Christ to everyone who you place in my path. But they ask the question, by what name or authority do you do this? By what power? By what name? And it tells us a lot about the biblical concept of name, that the Sanhedrin pairs it with by what power, and that it clearly means by what authority. Not only whose authority are you operating under, but by, by whose will do you do this? Whose agenda are you furthering? Who, who is the identity unseen behind all of this? Remember back in verse 16 when he was talking to the lame beggar, he says, and his name, by faith in his name, he has made this man strong. By faith in his name. Not that we need to say the word Jesus or Jesus in the, in the Greek or Yeshua in the Hebrew or Jesus in the Spanish like it's a magic word and we've got to find the exact right intonation of, of syllables. Rather, by whose authority? Jesus. Whose will, whose work and life and person and identity is behind all of this power in the book of Acts? Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Once again, combining the title of the historical figure with the religious Savior. They are one in the same. Notice here, though, that there's a comma. He, he answers the question, if you're asking by what, what power and authority we did this good deed for this crippled man? Well, let it be known that it was the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Could be, period, right? I've answered your question. Let me go. Nope, there's a beautiful comma right there. By the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus 
is the stone that was directed, rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Even though he's technically the defendant in this setting, he's like, enough defense. I'm going on the offensive. This is what he's going, everything to Peter, it looks like, you know that old saying, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. If you're Peter, everything looks like a sermon. He's just ready to proclaim the gospel. Anybody, have you considered switching to AT&T? This Jesus whom you crucified, he's ready to proclaim the gospel. He's going on the offensive. But have you ever noticed that offensive and offensive are spelled the same? A great overlap. And here he is quite offensive to those who are hearing him. Once again, he says this, you, you crucified Jesus. He's not worried about what they can do to him. Remember, whatever is given to you in that hour by the Holy Spirit, that's what you say. He's not worried about being respectable in this esteemed company. He and John are more concerned with what Jesus will say when they stand before him. And his sermon that he gives, it's short here, it should look rather familiar. It's the third time in four chapters we've seen essentially the same thing from Peter. One, you crucified Jesus. Two, God raised him from the dead. This God you claim to honor, the God whose racket you were trying to protect by crucifying him, he showed that Jesus is who he said he was by bringing him back from the other side so that he could stand before us and proclaim freedom to the captives. Three, God used your sin to bring about his good purpose. This is how God does things, right? Remember Joseph to his brothers, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. There's even good news for the very people who shouted crucify and handed him over to Pilate and demanded he be put to death, that there is salvation for them. That there, God was bringing about his purpose that he declared in Psalm 118, 22, which Peter quotes here. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And notice he even does a little uh, paraphrase and says, the stone that you builders rejected. He is not afraid. He is bold when he brings the gospel. He's the rock on which Jesus said he would build his church. Not by his own power or might, but because the Holy Spirit is within him. And notice that he's talking about the, the cornerstone. And, and he's talking about the building of a temple, a heavenly temple not made with human hands. While they're standing in Herod's temple, while he's proclaiming and while he's arrested and while he's tried. While they're standing in this symbol of their power, their spiritual monopoly. Peter reminds them there is more to this. If we go back to Luke 20, you see in, in that chapter that, that Jesus talks about this very same passage. It's one that's frequently, frequently quoted in the New Testament. And, and this is a very exclusive teaching, by the way. It, it, what he's teaching, it's, it's offensive because it's narrow. And that's a, a really nasty word today. But Jesus said, wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. Many find it. Small is the gate, narrow is the road that leads to life, and few find it. If your faith, if your beliefs are not in some sense narrow, then Jesus says you have not found the right path. But to those who are on the broad road, it can be infuriating, and we see that here. And yet, if our neighbors and our co-workers and our family members don't find the narrow road, let it not be because we didn't show them. Spurgeon said, if sinners must be condemned, let it be over our dead bodies, literally stepping over us 
that we're hanging on tight to their knees as they shuffle toward that wide road. Despite us, not because we were intimidated by the, in, the weapons and the tactics of the world. You see, Jesus teaches us here that there is no witness protection program for Christians. In Luke 20, we see that to be a witness means to put yourself into the line of persecution of various types. To be willing to do that. Look at Luke 20, verse 9 and following. The parable of the wicked tenants. He began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out, lent it out to tenants who went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent a third, this one, also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I'll send my beloved son. Perhaps they'll respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let's kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. But then, will the owner of the vineyard, what will he do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush them. Jesus is telling us the stakes are high. But the weapons of the army of light, although to the world they look laughable, are far more powerful than the intimidation and force that the world would use. And in verse 10 we see here, let it be known, or perhaps you ought to translate it just simply, know this, colon, Know this. It's a command. It's in the imperative tense. Know this. As we said last week, the time of passing over ignorance is over. Now you must know this, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. There is no other name by which anyone can find salvation. It is found only in Jesus. That's the fourth and final point of his sermon. Let's make it the fourth and final point of mine. This claim will be met with derision and scorn and laughter and threats and even punishment in today's world as it was in the world of the Acts of the Apostles. That's, that's what the world has in its arsenal. It's the only thing they know to do. But our weapon in this war of light versus darkness is powerful if we will boldly use it. Yes, it's offensive, to the natural man and the natural woman tainted by sin. It pushes against the hard human heart. And yet it's this gospel that the Holy Spirit uses to push hard enough to break that heart of stone. And break a sinner's hard heart and change that heart to a heart of flesh. And bring them into everlasting life. Everyone hearing Peter seems to have been horribly offended by his statement that, that salvation is found only in Jesus, only in this name. Not only because it implicated them of the greatest sin imaginable, but because it implied everything they'd been building with their lives, everything that they rested their, their name and their laurels upon, 
This system of propping up their own righteousness through, through rule-keeping, this foundation they'd been laying was actually a foundation of sand, not rock. And that if they would be saved, it would not be by their own power or merit or works, but by the finished work of Jesus, because there is no other name. And if you today have been trying to find salvation, find peace with God by keeping rules and doing enough good to counterbalance the bad, know this, colon, there is no other way to salvation but through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection from the empty tomb. There is not anything you or I can do to do away with our sins. Only by faith in that name, in his work, can we be saved. Peter then elaborated on this answer to their question. It was a simple question. By what name do you do this? And he went off on tangents and sermons. He probably closed with a poem, but they didn't include it. They asked by what power and what name both questions have the same answer. And the answer he ultimately gives is by the only name through which anyone can be saved. Jesus Christ of Nazareth. May we be so bold when opportunities arise. I know that I have seen them come, I have clammed up, and I've watched them go. And you go, wait a minute, Pastor, you, you stand before people and preach. Yeah, and not just people who are church people. I've, I've stood before big crowds of people who did not like the idea one bit of hearing from the gospel, and yet one-on-one, -on -one, I'll sometimes not even swing and miss. Just let them go right by and go, God, oh, I repent of that. Next time, next time give me the boldness. Let us pray every day for that boldness. Every day for when those opportunities arise to proclaim that there is one name, an idea that is offensive to the world and yet powerful, that we will grab hold of them like Peter and that we will proclaim that in the name of Jesus Christ there is salvation and that ultimately at the name of Jesus Christ every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the boldness that we see in the early church. Lord, we thank you that Peter, who ran from the garden, stood up in the temple and, Lord, with great boldness proclaimed the same message we are called to proclaim all these many years later, centuries and centuries later, that there is one name by which salvation may be found, the name of Jesus. And Lord, we pray that we too would proclaim it with boldness, that we would look for opportunities to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished. We pray all this in that holy name. Amen.